Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Uh, I had a professor in grad school who was absolutely brilliant. Uh, The guy was an archaeologist, and he knew everything. He knew everything about the ancient world. In fact, he was fluent in languages that were spoken millennia ago. He could speak Eucharitic, uh, Akkadian, Hittite. How, How many of you can speak Hittite? Yeah, I didn't think so. A really smart guy. And yet, for all his brains, there were some things I suspected he didn't know. You know, I I figured he didn't know a whole lot about baseball. You know, probably didn't know how to change the oil in his car. You know, I'm sure he didn't know anything about popular rock bands. And I'm definitely certain he didn't know how to give a final exam. Because a couple of weeks before the final exam, this is what happened. He handed out a study guide. The study guide was 25 pages long. It was made up of multiple choice questions. And he said, I'm going to take sections of the study guide and make it into the final exam. So you need to go research, find the answers to these questions. And so I spent hours and hours over the next couple of weeks uh, getting the answers to all these questions. And then I realized there's no no way in the world that I could memorize all this archaeological data and spew it out on a final exam. And then a crazy thought flitted through my mind. I thought to myself, what, is it, what if this absolutely brilliant professor, what if he doesn't know how to give a final exam? I mean, what if he decides to do the simplest thing, just import some of the sections from the study guide into the final exam without changing the order of the questions or the order of the right answers? See, if he does that, I don't need to know all this archaeological stuff. All I need to know is, you know, A, B, C, or D, which is the right answer. And so I memorized the right answers. So like if if question number one, if the right answer was D, and question number two, the right answer was C, and question number three, the right answer was A, and question number four, the right answer was B, I just memorized uh, D, C, A, B. I even came up with little ditties to remember the order. So dogs chew all bones. And I went to the final exam and I thought to myself, Okay, if he's smart enough to switch around the order of the questions or or the right answers, I'm toast. But thank God he didn't. He gave us two hours to take the test. I finished it in 20 minutes. I aced the final exam. I got an A in his course. Now that story is an analogy. Here here it is. My brilliant professor knew everything about archaeology. But there were other things he knew nothing about, like giving final exams. Do we ever put God in a similar box? Well, we believe that God is all-knowing. The theological word for that is omniscient. I mean, we're confident that God knows everything there is to know about the distant planets, about all 17,000 varieties of butterflies, about unseen angels and, and, and demons. But are there things that God doesn't know? Are there things that God doesn't know? Uh, I read recently a group of school children, they were asked that question, does God know everything? And their immediate response enthusiastically was, yes. <laughs> but the follow-up question was, well, does God know about computers? Well, that kind of stumped these kiddos. 
And they, they, they finally said, well, probably not. <laughs> probably not. Now, we smile at that because, of course, God knows about computers. But what about this? Does God know you? Does God know you? Think about it. There are seven and a half billion people on the planet, give or take a few. How well could God possibly know each and every person? Maybe he knows your name. He knows the color of your hair. You know, if you got hair. Maybe he knows your country of origin. But does God know your hopes and dreams for the future? Does God know about the uh, rants you recently posted on social media? Does God know about that person who's been making your life miserable? Does God know what you're thinking right now? Does he know what you're thinking right now? Does God know the details of your life? And even if he does, does he care? Now, the answer to that question is found in Psalm 139. So I want you to take your Bible. If you don't have one at hand, you hear me say this all the time, we like to mark up our Bibles. So grab a Bible you can mark up and turn to Psalm 139. Your mobile app is where you want to go to to get an outline for this sermon so you can at least follow along and maybe even fill it in as we go along. We're in the fifth week of a six-part series, a study in the Old Testament book of Psalms. The series is called Songs of Hope. Songs of Hope. One Bible scholar says this is the most intimate of the Psalms, Psalm 139. He says it displays a striking awareness of God's interests in individuals. God's interest in individuals. This is one of my favorite psalms. I love Psalm 139. This is a psalm worth memorizing. Okay, it's a psalm about God's knowledge. But not general knowledge. God knows everything. Intimate knowledge. God knows you. God knows me. Today we're going to learn four things from Psalm 139. What does God know about you? Here's number one. Write it down. He knows what you do, think, and say. Okay, God knows what you do, think, and say. I want you to uh, follow along in your Bible as I begin reading at verse 1, and I want you to circle the word know, K-N-O-W, every time it appears in your Bible. Okay, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. There's the first one. You know You know when I sit and when I rise. So God knows what you do. You perceive my thoughts from afar. God knows what you think. You discern my going out and my lying down and are familiar with all my ways. This is a repeat of God knows what you do. Verse 4, before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. God knows what you say. God knows what you do, what you think, what you say. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. My sister, uh, Debbie, got remarried half a dozen years ago, and every year since then, uh, she and her husband, Sean, they celebrate their anniversary with a little little dinner party. Uh, Sue and I always go along with two other couples, and the format's always the same. Uh, Starts out with eating Lou Malnati's pizza, And then we have red velvet cake, and then we play a version of the newlywed game. Now, the newlywed game's been around forever on TV, still around, I think. 
so you know the format of it. Uh, couples are sitting together, and first the wives are asked 10 questions about their husbands, and they write their answers down on cards, and then the husbands have to guess and see if their answer matches their wife's answer. And then it's turned around, the husbands, husbands are answered 10 questions about their wives, and so on, and on it goes. What always surprises me about playing the newlywed game with my wife is even though Sue and I have been married for four decades, there are still so many things we don't know about each other. And, and, and sometimes our mismatched answers, sometimes they're hilarious. I mean, we just laugh ourselves silly. Sometimes they make me mad because I'm competitive. I want to win the game. And Sue just can't get the right answer. You know? What do you mean my favorite dish is taco salad? You know it's Indian curry. Since when? Since like forever. (laughs) You'll never have that problem with God. I mean, here's the thing about God. If God played that game with you, if he was your partner, he'd get every question right. God knows absolutely everything about you, everything you do, everything you think, everything you say. And I I want you to especially note from Psalm 139 the way in which God has come uh, by all this insider knowledge. See, it's not not that God has this this data bank, okay? It's it's not that God has uh, an electronic file on you, so when he has a question about you, he just types in your name and bam, he gets a spreadsheet of everything that you did and thought and said last week. No, no, God's knowledge about you is not static, it's not impersonal, it's active and intimate. Now, what what do I mean when I say that God's knowledge about you is active? I mean that God is constantly watching over you. He's getting his information by personal observation. Look at some of the verbs in the opening verses that underscore this point. Verse 1, you have searched me, Lord. You've searched me. Second half of verse 2, you perceive, you perceive my thoughts. Verse 3, you discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. You know, the reason God knows you so well is because he has been focused on you. You say, well, how is that possible that God focuses on me? What about seven and a half billion other people? How could God focus on everybody simultaneously? Well, the answer is God is not a finite being like we are. God is an infinite being. So we're we're finite. There are limitations on how many things we can focus on at once. My wife is fond of pointing out my inability to multitask, okay? But God doesn't have that problem. God is infinite. And so God's eye never leaves you. God knows you inside and out. Years ago, a theologian by the name of J.I. Packer, he, he wrote a best-selling book called Knowing God. I still read that book periodically, reread it. And as you would suspect from a book called Knowing God, it's all about how to know God. But in the introduction to the book, Packer says there's something even more amazing than the fact that you can know God. It's the fact that God, the God of the universe, knows you. He knows you. 
Listen to what Packer writes in his book. What matters supremely, he says, is not in the, in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I'm never out of his mind. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. Wow. God knows you. Isn't that a comforting thought? It should be. But it should also be a little bit of an unsettling thought. Why do I say that? Well, think about it. God knows what you do, what you think, what you say. That means God knows about the profanity you unleash against other drivers. He knows uh, about the selfish way in which you avoid doing your fair share in chores around the house. He knows about the porn sites you visit, about your drinking problem. God knows that last week you ordered something from Amazon and they sent two instead of one. You only paid for one, but you kept both. And God knows. God knows about your penchant for gossip. God knows when you're harsh in your discipline with your kids. God knows everything you do, think, and say, "Uh uh-oh, Friends, this is why we so desperately need a Savior. You know, we tend to think of ourselves as basically good people. But is that an accurate assessment? You know, occasionally when I'm speaking to someone who just doesn't see their need, why why would I need a Savior? Why do I need Jesus? I say, imagine this, if you would. Imagine that you sin just three times a day. Okay, three times a day is the maximum that you, you do or think or say something inappropriate, something wrong. You, you'd be almost a Mother Teresa, wouldn't you? <laughs> three times a day. But now do the math. That's over a thousand times a year in the course of a lifetime. That's 70,000, 80,000 sins on your record. So what if you walked into court with 70 or 80,000 crimes on your record? What would you expect the judge to do? Would he let you off? See, we got a problem. We're we're, we're sinners through and through, every one of us. 1 John 1 verse 8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We're all sinners. And all our sins have been committed in full view of an all-knowing God. That's a problem. Sin alienates us from a holy God. Sin pushes him away. And the trouble with disconnecting from a holy God is this holy God is also the source of life. And so when we disconnect from him, the consequence is death. We die spiritually. We're going to die physically. We're going to die eternally. But God loves us so much. He recognizes our need for a Savior, and so God sent a Savior. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, and Jesus died on the cross to take the death we deserve to die. That was the penalty for our sins, and he was raised from the dead, and he now offers forgiveness and new life to everyone who surrenders to him. If you've never surrendered to Jesus, do it today. 
If you've never surrendered to Jesus, do it today. Jesus will not only deliver you from sin's penalty, he will also take over the leadership of your life and on a daily basis deliver you from the power of sin. You know, one of the evidences, friend, listen, one of the evidence that, that evidences that you've surrendered your life to Christ is that you become acutely aware that God sees everything, knows everything that you do think and say. And so you begin to keep short accounts with God on a daily basis. You confess your sins and you receive fresh forgiveness and you plead with God for help in overcoming these weaknesses in your life because you want to be a changed person. By the way, if you do this on a regular basis, it brings a humility to your life. It brings a, a winsome brokenness that is sorely lacking in the world today. Everybody is so angry with everybody else. Why? Because we're focused on the wrongs of others. Let me tell you, there's so much crap in my life. When I stop to realize that God sees everything I do, I think, I say, you know, I don't have time to be correcting everybody else's wrongs. You know, it brings a humility. It brings a brokenness. It brings, as I said a moment ago, a winsomeness. What else does God know? God's knowledge. Second, God knows where you go. God knows where you go. Back to Psalm 139. And let's pick it up at verse 5. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your, your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Uh, my son and daughter-in-law recently bought a new house, uh, an old new house in Oak Park. And so the extended family was invited over a week or two ago for a, a housewarming party. So I, my grandson, Winston, four years old. He was there, and I, I could see that he was bored out of his four-and-a-half-year-old mind. And so I said, Winston, why don't you and Grandpa, why don't we play hide-and-seek? Now, during the course of the game, I had to try really hard not to see where Winston was. You know what I'm saying? You know, in his little four-year-old uh, mind, he had no concept for total concealment. So I had to deliberately try not to find him. I could see his toes sticking out from under the, the curtain or he would leave the door of the closet that he was hiding in open because he didn't want to be there in, in the dark. And so I'd have to walk around going, well, where in the world is Winston? Where in the, I have no idea where he's gone. Though I knew exactly where he had gone. It's kind of like that with God. We may think we can get away from him, but we can't. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. You know, look again at verse 8. The psalmist says God is in the heavens, so he's high, and he's in the depths. He's low. Verse 9, God is at the dawn, so he's east, and he's on the far side of the sea. He's west. That's the direction of the Mediterranean Sea for the psalmist. Verses 11 and 12, God is in the darkness, and he's in the light. 
He's high, he's low, he's east, he's west, he's dark, he's light. God is everywhere you go. Now, now at first reading, the, the fact that God knows where you go, wherever that is, it may, it may come across as a threat. You know, you, you picture Clint Eastwood saying, you can run, but you can't hide. I do a lousy Clint Eastwood. Does, doesn't God's omnipresence, doesn't it feel threatening to you? It, it did to Jonah. Remember that Old Testament prophet? You know, God said, Jonah, I, I've got a mission for you. I want you to go to Nineveh, capital city of Assyria. I want you to tell people to repent of their sins and turn to God. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Okay, the Assyrians were cruel enemies of Israel. And so Jonah not only feared them, he hated them. And so God says, go northeast. And Jonah jumps on a ship and heads southwest across the Mediterranean. How many of you know you can't ditch God? (laughs) All right. You can't get away from God. Dumb idea. So God sends a storm and the sailors throw Jonah overboard and he becomes dinner for a giant fish. God knows where you go. Now, is that a threat? Well, it may feel like a threat on, uh, on occasion, but not so in the context of Psalm 139. Go back to verse 5, if you would. Verse 5, you hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. See, the psalmist is describing God's omnipresent protection. And he calls it wonderful, maravilloso. You know, detrás y delante me rodeaste y sobre mí pusiste tu mano. Tal conocimiento es demasiado maravilloso para mí. Alto es, no lo puedo comprender. I love this psalm, so I I committed parts of it to memory in Spanish. Verse 10, wherever I go, the psalmist says to God, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. See, now he's describing God's omnipresent direction. When, When I feel lost, God knows where I am and where I need to go. This is not a threat. This is good news. I mean, sure, there are times when the psalmist would like to hide from God. But for the most part, he's really thankful that even when he wanders off into the darkness, darkness is as light to God, and God knows exactly where he is. Maybe you feel like you're wandering around in the dark today. You know, it could be the darkness of your own sinful choices. And so you're stuck in the darkness of some addiction or you're, you're surrounded by the, the, the broken pieces of a, a relationship that you sabotaged. You know, it could be that your darkness is, is due to the current pandemic. You've lost your job and you have no idea what to do. Or you're just so sick and tired of staying at home, sheltering in place. It's driving you mad. Or maybe you're feeling the darkness of this racial tension. Maybe you're a person of color and you're wondering, is justice ever going to come? Or or you're white and you're frightened by this over-the-top, out-of-control rioting. Whatever your darkness today, God knows where you are. 
got a friend who used to say to me on dark occasions, he would say, Jim, God still got your address. God still got your address. God knows where you've gone. Number three, God knows who you are. God knows who you are. Now we're coming to my favorite section of one of my favorite Psalms. So pick it up at verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I'm still with you. God made you. God knit you together in your mother's womb. He designed you to be short or tall. He designed you to be athletic or musical, extroverted or introverted, male or female, intense or or laid back. And this means that God understands every aspect of who you are. God gets you. God gets you. You know, I love the story about Henry Ford, the automobile pioneer. When Ford was building his first car factory, he uh, called his friend Charlie Steinmetz. Uh, Charlie was an electrical genius. And he said, I I need you to design a generator to power my my car factory. And so Steinmetz did. And uh, one day the generator broke down and the on-site repairman couldn't figure out how to fix it. And so uh, Ford put in a call to Charlie and Charlie came by and worked on it for a couple of hours and pretty soon the generator was up and running. But Ford was surprised a couple days later to get a bill from Charlie for $10,000, which was a humongous amount back then. And so he sent the, back, the, the bill back to Charlie, and he said, $10,000 for two hours of tinkering? Charlie sent the bill back to Mr. Ford with an, an, an itemization of it. He said, two hours of tinkering, $10. Knowing where to tinker, $9,990. See, Charlie knew where to tinker because he had created the generator. You know, don't ever think for a moment that God doesn't understand you. God created you. He knows exactly how you run best. He wants you to confide in him, to trust him. He knows who you are. Now, these verses that describe God's creation of you in your mother's womb, they also offer a powerful corrective to some of the major problems that we face today in our culture. Let me quickly mention three of those problems. Okay, the first is is abortion. Look again at verse 16. Psalm 139 says that when God knit me together in my mother's womb, his eyes saw my unformed body and all the days ordained for me were written in God's book. The psalmist is describing the creation of a person. A person. Not a blob of tissue. Not a fetus, not an unwanted pregnancy, not a problem that needs to be eliminated. A person. 
Do you know what turns more women away from abortion, women considering abortion, what turns more of them around than, than any other factor? It's an ultrasound. Why an ultrasound? Because now they're able to see that that baby inside of them, it's a, it's a little person. And so abortion means the taking of a human life. So Psalm 139 addresses abortion. What, what else does it address? It addresses racism. Racism. You know, back on July 4th, 1776, the Declaration of Independence was signed. It said that all, all people are created equal. All people. That they have a right. They have a right to, li to liberty and to the pursuit of happiness. At the, at the time that the declaration was signed, there were 700,000 black slaves in the colonies. All people are created equal. The Constitution of the United States, they, it laid down rules for how to choose representatives to go to Congress, how to count your population so you knew how many from your state could be sent to Congress. And it stipulated that a black slave would count as three-fifths of a person. Not a whole person. Three-fifths of a person. You say, well, you know, that was 250 years ago, ancient history. Really. I, I, I submit to you that when someone shoots and kills an Ahmad Arbery as he's out jogging, when a police officer puts his knee into the neck of George Floyd until he is asphyxiated, it can only be because these black men are considered less than persons, fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of the God who created them. Now, just so I don't get too many emails from those of you who think that I'm uh, not even-handed in my illustration here, let me, let me say, when out-of-control rioters, when they destroy the store of some poor shop owner, or when they throw bricks and bottles at a police officer, it could only be that they recognize the, the shop owner and the police officer as less than a person, fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of the God who created them. Friends, the answer to racism is Psalm 139. Third, third problem this addresses, that God knows you. It addresses the problem of poor self-esteem. You, you might not like the way God made you, but you know what God does. And he considers you to be of incredible worth. So quit complaining about your frizzy hair or flat chest or big feet. You know, quit complaining about your painful shyness or your, your lack of athletic, athleticism or your emotionalism. You are a masterpiece. And, and that's, not just a, that's not just a piece of hype. That's truth from God's word, Psalm 139. So maybe you need to look in the mirror after the sermon is over and you need to say in the words of that bumper sticker, God made me and God don't make no junk. You know who first coined that saying? 
God made me and God don't make no, no, no junk. Ethel Waters. You know who Ethel Waters was? Uh, back in the 1920s, uh, Ethel began her career as a jazz singer. And she eventually became somewhat famous. She became the first African-American ever to star in a TV show of her own. But a lot of time passed, and she came into an older age, and she was, Ethel was messed up on the inside. You know, she had been born as the result of a rape. She had grown up in abject poverty. She had been married off at age 13 to a man who beat her. And now at the age of 61, she was 350 pounds. She was in debt. The IRS was pursuing her. She was one desperate, one depressed black woman. And she walked, one night she walked into a Billy Graham event at Madison Square Garden. And she heard this evangelist say that God loves you and that you've been created in the image of a God who made you fearfully and wonderfully. And God loves you so much that he paid with his son's life to redeem you. And that night, Ethel Waters surrendered her life to Jesus Christ as her Savior and her King, and her life was never the same. And her self-esteem turned around. And from that point on to the end of her life, she frequently sang at Billy Graham events around the world. Her signature song was, His Eye is on the Sparrow. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he cares for me. God knows who you are and he loves you and he loves you fourth and finally god knows why you're troubled god knows why you're troubled psalm 139 takes a weird turn now it gets kind of dark for a few verses let me read the closing section of this psalm to you beginning at verse 19 if only you god would slay the wicked Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Some of you were uncomfortable as I read these closing verses to you. See, up through verse 18, the psalmist had said so many uplifting, so many heartwarming things. And then he gets to verse 19, and, and there's just this outrage now. You know, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. Do I not hate those who hate you? I have nothing but hatred for them. Is it okay for the psalmist to talk like this? I mean, how did this kind of stuff end up in the Bible? Let, let, let me note a couple of very important uh, qualifiers about the psalmist's angry outburst here. First of all, let me point out, he's talking to God. Okay, he's talking to God. He's not blasting other people to their faces. He, he's doing therapy, if you would, with his divine counselor. He's getting it all out to God. 
Remember last week we did a lament psalm. And I said, you know, it's, it's okay when you see stuff that stinks in this world, it's okay to tell God, God, this stinks. This stinks. Well, Psalm 139 is not a lament psalm, but it, you know, it's kind of like that. It's an angry outburst, but it's directed to God because God is the only one who could do anything about that which the psalmist is, is indignant, angry about. The second thing I want to note about the psalmist's outburst is it's not just a personal matter that he's upset about. I mean, he's not raging because his boss didn't give him a raise or because his dad's not going to let him use the car or because the governor is making him shelter in place. I mean, this psalmist is upset with people who are dissing God and God's standards. Look again at verse 20. They speak of you, God, with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. That stained the psalmist. And to verse 21, do, not, do I not abhor those who are in rebellion against you? See, if we're going to get angry about something, you know, let's get angry about some really wicked things. Not, not the fact that Comcast is slow in fixing our Wi-Fi. Now, having said that, you know, it's okay to blow off a little steam with God, with God about anything and, and everything that's troubling us, as, as, as long as we do it with the humility and with the openness to correction that we see in the closing verses of Psalm 139. You see, when you're troubled about something, it could be that part of the problem is you. I'm just saying. Okay, when you're troubled about something, part of the problem could be your attitude. But you, part of the problem could be your contribution to the conflict in that relationship. You know, part of the problem, your financial mess that you're in, is that you've been not honoring God with the use of your money. You know, part of the problem... Uh, what troubles you is that maybe you haven't been making God a priority in your life. Part of, part of the, the trouble you're, you're feeling with regard to this racial unrest is maybe there's some prejudice in, in your life that needs to be dealt with. I'm not saying that you're the entire problem, but you may be part of it. And so when you're troubled about something, keep in mind, God knows why you're troubled. And he wants to come alongside of you and he wants to help. But, but he's also going to deal with your contribution to the problem. You know, so pray with humility the closing verses of Psalm 139. In fact, I would recommend to you memorize verses 23 and 24 and use them often as a prayer. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thought. See if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Lord God, as we bow before you, we want to acknowledge that you know everything we think, we do, we say. And so, God, help us to keep short accounts with you, confessing our sin, coming back to you again and again, not being so quick to point out the wrongs in others' lives, but dealing with the crud in our own lives. And God, for some of us who've never come to you as Savior, 
help us to recognize that our track record requires that we get forgiven and the only one who can do it is Jesus. We recognize today that you know where we go. You know the darkness that we've wandered into. And so, God, I pray that you would track us down and pull us out of it. God, you know who we are. And so I pray that you would give us a healthy self-esteem. And God, I pray that we would stand against abortion and stand against racism, God, that we would remember that we are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of the God who created us. And God, today, you know why we're troubled. And I pray for those who are struggling. God, there's enough unrest in our world to impact every one of us. And we bring our troubles to you. And we know that you will empathize. But we also know that you'll do surgery on our own lives. And so we say, yes, God, search us and know us. Test us. If there's any offensive way in us, God, lead us in the way eternal. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.